Speaking of the word, if you have your Bible, I invite you to open it to Daniel chapter 4 is where we're going to be today. Actually, we're going to be in chapter 4 and 5. If you don't have a Bible with you, that's all right. We've got some for you in the chair uh, rack that's either in front of you, behind you, right there. There should be one not far from you. And I encourage you to grab one of those. I think it's about seven, page 740 in, uh, in the chair Bible. It'll be about there. Uh, we will be in chapter uh, four or so of Daniel. And as you're turning there, uh, thinking about this, we're going to be in four and five today, and I'm going to be using a lot of different scriptures jumping around in there. So I'll name off some verse numbers, and you can kind of follow along uh, with where we're going to be. Let me ask you, when, when I started this book of Daniel series, how many of you, uh, those of you probably who are Christians, maybe read through the Bible before, you get some familiarity, how many of you thought, oh good, they're going through the book of Daniel? A lot of, some excitement, some a couple, a few, right? Yeah, a few. And let me tell those of you that didn't raise your hand or maybe you don't have, you didn't know the book of Daniel before, I'll tell you why those people raised their hands for two reasons. One is because Daniel has some really exciting stories that you're like, I want to hear about the fiery furnace, the lion's den and all this stuff and I you know, preach on that and I want to hear about that. That's one reason. The second reason is because they know there's some stuff in Daniel that's hard to understand. They're like, I'm going to see how pastor's going to handle this. And, uh, and that's just two reasons. So they're kind of sitting going, okay, what are you going to do with this thing? Um, that's true about Daniel. Most of that comes towards the end of the book, and I'm going to let Pastor Marvin preach that. Um, and... Uh, <laughs> There's some truth to that. He's preaching the first sermon of chapter 7. But, uh, but some of that comes at the beginning of the book. We come to a couple passages this morning that when you're reading through them, you're like, what is going on here? There's some wild things that may be going on here in chapters 4 and 5, and we're going to cover them today. We're going to cover the experience of two kings, one in chapter 4, one in chapter 5, and they are pretty wild experiences that these two kings have. And here's the question I want to start, I want to ask you, kind of put in your mind as I'm talking through these stories. Here's the question. Have you ever had at times in your life something happen that you didn't expect to happen? Maybe you didn't want to happen, but it happened anyway. Or have you ever been hoping something would happen? Maybe praying something would happen and it wasn't happening. And you had a question, why? Why did that happen? Why didn't that happen? Of course, we've all had these experiences. As we go through these two kings' experiences today, I want us to see two things. One, there was a cause for what each king experienced. And two, there was a reason for what each king experienced. Now, you may think in your mind, well, aren't those the same thing, the cause and the reason? Hang with me. I think they're different. There's a cause for what they experienced and there's a reason for it. And I think in our lives, when we sometimes look at the things that we go through, there's a cause, what may have happened, but there's also a reason, and that if we miss the reason, we may risk, miss what God is really wanting to do and wanting to teach us in our lives, all right? So you got that? So we're going to move in, Daniel. We got two stories that are really amazing stories, and I'm going to try my best. One of my favorite a preaching professor from a seminary, Haddon Robinson, used to tell his students, uh, us as students, he said, uh, the Bible's a great story, now don't ruin it. <laughs> and what he meant by that is this. He didn't mean, what he didn't mean is the Bible's a story in the way that people make up stories. That's not what he meant. The Bible is true and the facts and the historical facts are true. But what he meant is the way that God often delivers it 
is a powerful narrative of what happened. I mean, you read some of the accounts in the Bible, and they're incredible, the way that, that God has chosen to deliver them to us. There's tension, there's plot, there's twists, there's, there, there's, there's character development, all of that stuff that's found in a great story, true story, is there. And so I am going to do my best to please my preaching professor and not ruin it for you this morning, because these are two incredible accounts of what happens to these two kings. The first one is named Nebuchadnezzar. You met him before as we've been going through Daniel. But Daniel chapter 4 is about Nebuchadnezzar. I'm going to pick up a little later in the story and then we're going to like flash back. Here's what's going on in Nebuchadnezzar. One day in his life, he is surveying and considering his kingdom as I would guess kings are wont to do. I've never been a king, but if I was a king, I think this is something I'd probably do. Just think about your kingdom. Just think about all that you have and all that is under your control. And Nebuchadnezzar certainly had a lot to think about. He's not king of some, you know, second-rate market corner fiefdom. He is king of Babylon, greatest empire of his time, greatest city of his time. He's built incredible things. He uh, built something for one of his wives known as the Hanging Gardens that were so impressive they're considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. He's done much. His city that he is considering, uh, thinking about in the midst of it is surrounded by three walls. The first one is 21 feet thick. The city have chariot races across the top of it. Second wall, 12 feet thick. And then outside that wall is a moat that at some places is 200 feet wide. But that wasn't enough for Nebuchadnezzar. He wanted more protection. He built a third wall around the city. 80 feet wide is this wall. And outside of that, he diverted the Tigris and Euphrates River to form another moat that was some 300 feet wide. You can imagine he felt pretty secure in Babylon. And not only did he have these security measures, he also had other things that he built in the city that made the city this magnificent and beautiful city. He built something called the Ishtar Gate. And I'll show you a picture. There's the Ishtar Gate as archaeologists have uncovered and recreated part of uh, what it might have looked like in his day. Through this, this gate, it was high, covered, enameled with brick reliefs, 575 bulls and dragons. Through the gate ran the procession called the Way, which was covered in limestone slabs, three feet square, an inscription credited it to Nebuchadnezzar. The walls along the procession way were overlaid with enameled brick decorated with 120 lions. So you can imagine as he is looking at all he has, it's pretty impressive. And he reigns over all of it. And so maybe that's what's in his mind when in Daniel chapter 4 and verse 30, he is quoted in the Bible as saying this to himself at that moment. 
Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? So Nebuchadnezzar is feeling pretty good. Look at all I have done. Look at my kingdom. Look at my majesty. He's feeling pretty good about himself. But here's where the story, the account takes a twist. Because in that moment, suddenly, as soon as he breathes these words, a voice from heaven comes out to him. And in verse 31, this voice says, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. And you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you. And so it was like that. In the moment that Nebuchadnezzar speaks these words of how great his kingdom is and how great he is, he goes from king to cattle literally goes to the doghouse immediately. Starts acting like a beast of the field. Starts eating grass. He's outside, living outside. I don't know what the people around him thought of this. I can't imagine, but can you imagine going from that? One moment you're a king surveying all of your country. Another moment you are out in the field, literally lost his mind and acting like a cattle of the field. Now that might come as a surprise to you. That it happened to Nebuchadnezzar, and certainly if it happened to you, it would come as a surprise, right? It shouldn't have come as a surprise to Nebuchadnezzar. It shouldn't have, because one year earlier, God had given him a dream. And not only had he given him a dream, he had allowed Daniel in his court to interpret the dream. And in that dream, it was told him that this very thing was going to happen. So I'm going to back up in chapter 4 to when Daniel comes on the scene. Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, verse 19, was dismayed for a while after the king told him his dream. And his thoughts alarmed him. And the king answered and said to Belteshazzar, Let not the dream or interpretation alarm you, Belteshazzar. Belteshazzar answered and said, My lord, may the dream be for those who hate you, and its interpretation be for your enemies. The tree, the king saw a tree in his dream, the tree you saw which grew and became strong so that its top reached to heaven and it was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant and in which food was for all under which the beasts of the field found shade and in whose branches the birds of heaven lived, it is you. Well, that sounds pretty good so far. Daniel goes on. O king who have grown and become strong, your greatness has grown and reaches to the heaven and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field and let him be wet with the dew of heaven and let his portion be with the beasts of the field till seven periods of time pass over him. 
This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High which has come upon my Lord the King that you shall be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven and seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And this is what was told to Nebuchadnezzar one year before that day. And then a year later, he utters these words, look at my kingdom, look what I have done. And immediately, the dream and its interpretation comes true. King to cattle. And he's out grazing and he's there for seven years before he comes to his senses. And exactly what God said through Daniel happened. And my question is why? Why from king to cattle? Well, I think the short answer is there's a cause that happened and that was Nebuchadnezzar's pride. We've seen it. He said, this is my kingdom. This is what I have done. And that's what instigated God's judgment on him. The cause was his pride. In fact, at the end of the seven years, when Nebuchadnezzar comes to his senses, what he says in verse 37 of chapter 4 is this. He comes to it after seven years of living like cattle. He comes to his senses and he says, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. He knows. He knows what he did. He knows what the cause of it was. He knows that his pride was the cause of him being taken from king to cattle. But just as I said at the beginning, I think there's a cause for things that happen in our lives. But then there's also a reason. There's also a reason that they take place. And just because his pride was the cause, it wasn't necessarily the whole reason that it took place. And I think the reason that this took place is found later where God says, where uh, Daniel said in these words to him, in the interpretation, he says, till you know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Pride may have caused it, but the reason God allowed it is so that Nebuchadnezzar would finally realize that this God of these Hebrew people that he's keeping as slaves is not some local deity that he can just dismiss and treat how he wants, but he is God of gods and king of kings, and he is Lord even of Nebuchadnezzar. 
In fact, the voice from heaven just before he goes to the field as a cattle said once again, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. You think you built this? You think it's from your hand? The God of the Hebrews, these people you're keeping as slaves, he gives it to whoever he wants. And you want proof? You're going to go live out in the field like a cattle for seven years. And that's what happens. It's a crazy experience. The cause was his pride. The reason was so that he would know God is God. That's King Nebuchadnezzar. Second king is in chapter 5. The second king is Belshazzar. Say that with me. Belshazzar. Let's try it again. Belshazzar. Now, do you remember the name that Daniel's name was changed to? Not Belshazzar, Belteshazzar, right? All right. Daniel's name was changed to Belteshazzar. The king's name is what? Belshazzar. I want you to keep that straight because I kept mixing it up when I was preparing this message. So if I mix it up, you remember Daniel's Belteshazzar, the king is Belshazzar. These two things. Second account in chapter 5 is King Belshazzar. And we don't know much about Belshazzar. In fact, everything we know about him happened in one day, actually one night, actually one party. It was a big party. Thousand people showed up. Thousand people were invited. Thousand, actually more than a thousand. Thousand lords were there. And then he had his wives and concubines and who knows how many that numbered. Big party. It was on October 12th, 539 BC, if you were looking for your invitation. That's the night it happened. October 12th, 539 BC, Belshazzar throws a big party. It was a raucous celebration with wine flowing freely, a hedonistic pursuit of all kinds of pleasure. And in the midst of that party, if you think what happened to Nebuchadnezzar was wild, well, listen to what happened to Belshazzar. In the midst of that party with the thousand people present and all that's going on, all of a sudden, in the middle of it, it's interrupted and everything stops. And I wish I had like a special effect to make this happen in here, but I don't. Because a hand appears and starts writing on a wall. The fingers of a human hand appeared and began to write a message on the wall. Not a person writing with their hand, but a hand without a person writing on the wall. How would you react to that? How would you respond? I mean, you might respond even a little differently now. I mean, 21st century, animatronics, you'd be like, okay, someone figured out. But I mean, imagine no knowledge of that whatsoever. There's no chance of that even happening because you would be suspicious immediately before you found out it wasn't that. So there's no chance of any of that happening. And you see a hand writing on the wall. How would you react? Here's how Belshazzar reacted, verse 5 of chapter 5. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. 
Then the king's color changed, his thoughts alarmed him, his limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. I think that's about right. Right? After you spit out your drink, rub your eyes, pinch yourself, and think, am I dreaming? That's about how I would react. Color changed, limbs go limp, knees start knocking together. You start getting, you start getting freaked out at that moment. Of course, the next response is going to be, well, what does it say? What's being written? The only problem is Belshazzar couldn't read it. So he brought in the most learned and educated men in his kingdom. They couldn't read it. Well, what then? Well, here he is. He's nervous. Why is he so nervous? Why is his color changing? His, 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 his limbs going weak? His knees? Not just because a hand is writing on the wall. Because he knows that there's an important message that he cannot understand. If a hand without a body is writing on the wall in your room, here's what he knows. It's a supernatural message. It's, it's a supernatural message. He thinks one of his gods may be trying to get his attention. And if there's a supernatural important message given to you, you want to be able to understand it. It's like if you're at work and all of a sudden, you know, your, your computer dings and you see there's an email from your boss or your boss's boss or the CEO of the company and you realize it's a personal email to you from that person, but you can't open the attack. You have no idea what it says. And you are thinking, is this good news? Is this bad news? What kind of news is this? It's that feeling you parents get when you look down and realize one of your kids has called on the phone and you miss their call and it's a time they don't usually call. And at that moment, your parents, you know, you're thinking all kinds of things and you call them back immediately and you're trying and you get voicemail and you call them again and you finally get them and you say, did you call? I missed your call. Is everything all right? What's going on? I'm so sorry I didn't answer the phone. I'll never listen to that pastor again when he tells me to silence my phone. You know, what is it? Are you okay? And the usual response is something like, yeah, where do we keep the bread? You know, but that, moment between knowing there's an important message from an important person and not knowing what it is, is multiply that by about a thousand and that's what Belshazzar is feeling. Here's an important message from an important person, but I don't know what it says. And I need to find out what it says. He's king of this country. He is having this party of thousands of people. Is it good news? Is it bad news? None of his educated people can understand it. He doesn't know what to do. He should know what to do, but he doesn't. His, so then enters the queen mother. Queen mother was probably either the wife of his father or maybe the wife of his grandfather. We're not quite sure, but it's someone uh, who has a matriarchal position in the kingdom and has some bit of historical knowledge as well. And so she says to him, you got to go get Daniel. 
There was a man in your father's time who could interpret dreams, and he will be able to tell you what it says. And so Belshazzar calls Belteshazzar and brings him in, brings Daniel in to interpret it and retrieves it. So he calls him in, and he offers him gold, a gold chain, purple clothes, and then he offers him maybe something that might seem a little strange. He offers him, he said, if you can interpret this, I'll put a gold chain around your neck, I'll give you purple clothes, royal clothes, and I'll make you third most powerful person in the kingdom. Now, does that seem strange to anybody else? Because why third? All right, I want to put a historical parenthesis in here, okay? Here's a historical parenthesis for a second pause. Here's, what, here's what's going on. So for a long time, people were like, this part of the Bible doesn't make historical sense. Because we know that a man named Nabonidus was the king of Babylon when the Medes and the Persians came in and destroyed the city. And spoiler alert, that's about to happen. So we would expect Nabonidus to be king of Babylon. But here's the thing. Nabonidus was king of Babylon, but he liked to go out of Babylon. He liked to leave Babylon at times. He couldn't be content with staying in Babylon. So while he left, he needed someone to govern, and he made Belshazzar a co-regent of his, and he stayed in Babylon, and he would rule in Babylon while Nabonidus was out doing what he wanted to do. And so... Belshazzar, when he comes to Daniel and says, I'll put a gold chain around your neck, I'll give you a purple robe, and I'll make you third in power in the kingdom, it's because he was second in power in the kingdom. He couldn't make him second. Belshazzar was second. The best he could do was third. So it'll be Nabonidus, it'll be me, and it'll be you. And that's why in the historical literature, you'll see Nabonidus being king when the Medes and the Persians come in. And in this part, we see Belshazzar. There is actually, I love, I've been loving going through Daniel because of all the extra biblical historical things that, that support this. Even the previous story, there is extra biblical literature that they have discovered that supports the fact that a Babylonian king was gone from his throne for seven years and was restored through the words of a Hebrew prophet. And these things become uh, verified as we, as, uh, we who believe the scripture's truth know that they would. And that's why these are not stories that are made up. They're grounded in history. And so I think those are two, a couple of important points, as well as the Ishtar Gate and all that stuff we looked at earlier. These are stories grounded in history. And that's what happened. Close parentheses. Let's get back to Belshazzar. He tells you, Daniel, I'll do these things. Daniel says, I'm not interested. He literally tells him, keep your stuff. But he does give him the interpretation. Read the word, reads the words, and keeps the interpretation. And Daniel reads the words, and the words say, Mene, Mene, Teko, Parson. And he gives the interpretation. And he says, here's what it means, king. Mene, 
God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been brought, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. This is in verses 26 through 28 of chapter 5. In verse 28, Parson or Parison, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. And that's exactly what happened. Look at verse 30 of chapter 5. That very night, Belshazzar the Chaldean king was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old, which is why we know that that party was on October 12th, 539 BC, because that was the night that the Medes and the Persians came in and took Babylon. How did they take a city with an 80-foot wall and a 12-foot wall and a 21-foot wall? Well, for one thing, they waited for a night where everyone was at a party and the military wasn't going to be ready. And then on that night, they found a weak spot. Every city needs water and they had the Euphrates River running through the city. So on this night, the Medes and the Persians took their army and they dammed up the river upstream. And when the river stopped, they came through on the muddy riverbed under the wall, walked right into the city and without virtually any resistance took over the city of Babylon. And again, the words came true that were to Nebuchadnezzar that God is in control and he will give it to whoever he wants. And that's the thing here with Belshazzar too. The cause, what was the cause for Belshazzar and this writing and hand on the wall? Well, it's a part that I have not read to you yet. It's in verse two of chapter five. Here's what Belshazzar did. It was arrogance, but a little different kind of arrogance. Belshazzar in chapter two, uh, verse two of chapter five says, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple of the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold, and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. And then the hand starts to write on the wall. Immediately after Belshazzar had done this unholy thing, took the objects that were supposed to be used in worship to the one and only true God, and he used them in worship to false gods. And in that moment, the hand starts writing on the wall. And that is the cause of Belshazzar's downfall. But the reason for this lesson in his life, I think, was the same as Nebuchadnezzar's. In fact, I think Belshazzar was even more responsible because he had knowledge of the lesson that was already taught to Nebuchadnezzar. In fact, Daniel, when he comes to him with the interpretation, basically says, you should know better. Here's what he says exactly, verse 22. 
Daniel says, and you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. You knew about the seven years and all of that. But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of his house have been brought in before you. And you and your lords, your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways you have not honored. And that was the reason. The cause may have been his action, but the reason was he did not recognize God as God. And he should have known better. Daniel says, you should have known better. It's interesting to me that Nebuchadnezzar is given a chance to repent and Belshazzar is not. And I think part of the reason is because Belshazzar already had the knowledge of what he should have known and was ignoring it. It's not my main point today, but I at least think it's an important point that we are responsible for the knowledge that we have been given. How much more are you and I responsible in the 21st century when the word of God is so freely available to us? When you can Google scriptures, when you have free access to the word of God preached and delivered and given to you, when you sit in the church on a day like this in the morning, how much more are we responsible for what we know not my main point this morning. Let's get back to the point. The point is there's a cause and a reason. Belshazzar had forgotten what he should not have forgotten. And we have short memories at times. We remember what we should forget and we forget what we should remember. And he had forgotten what she, he should have remembered. So the lesson of these two kings, the reason is this, that kingdoms come and go, but the kingdom of God lasts forever. That's the lesson of Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar that they didn't get. That kingdoms come and go. Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, Nabonidus, kings throughout the ages, emperors throughout the ages, empires, presidents, they come, they go, but the kingdom of God is forever. It's back to that lesson that we learned that first week that there are a lot of people who end up in charge, but God is ultimately in control. So what does it mean for us? We can easily look at Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar and think, man, they are messed up. Glad I'm not like them. But that would be a bit ignorant of us, right? You're not a king of Babylon, queen of Babylon. But do we ever survey our little kingdoms and think, look at all we have built? Do we ever, like Nebuchadnezzar, tempted to survey our position and our possessions and sit back for a little while and think, look what I have done? Look at what I have built. Like the man that Jesus spoke about, the rich ruler, who accumulated so many possessions that he had to build bigger silos just to hold them. And he said to himself, 
You have plenty of gain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. And God said to him, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded of you. I think the same words could have been spoken to Nebuchadnezzar or Belshazzar. You fool. You think you're in control. You think it's everything that you have done. But it's not. We have to be careful. I think we have to look at our lives. Do we ever arrogantly look at what we have done and think that it's all us and forget that God has been at work? That everything we receive is ultimately from him. We didn't create any of it. God gives it to us. Secondly, do we ever, like Belshazzar, do we ever arrogantly use things that were meant for worship of God for our own personal gain and purposes without bringing God into the picture. You say, well, Pastor Rick, I'm off the hook on that one. I mean, search my house. There's no gold cups or anything that, you know, was offered to God in the temple, for sure. But I don't know that we're off the hook because Paul in the New Testament, the Bible tells us, he says this, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? whom you have from God. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Have I ever taken the body, the time, the energy, the, the, what God has given to me and used it for my purposes and not his? In fact, uh, the words to Belshazzar are, the God whose hand is your breath. I mean, the most basic thing we do is breathe. And Daniel's telling Belshazzar, even that basic thing that you do, that you don't even think about, the breath in your lungs, is from God. Forget about the kingdom you have. Just breathing is from God. And he says, and you're ignoring it. Do I ever take for granted just the ability to breathe and have this body and, and have what I have and use it for my own gain instead of God's? Well, if you and I take stock of those two things, have I ever looked at my things or the things that I have and been prideful about them, thought that they're of my own hand? Have I ever used my body or what God has given me for my own purposes, pleasure and gain and not for God's? I think if we're honest with each other and we answer those questions, we would say, yes, guilty. We would say that we are like Belshazzar, weighed and found wanting. We fall short. We don't measure up. I don't. You don't. We've all at times been prideful and arrogant. We've all at times used things that God has given us for his glory, for our own gain. And that's where we have to remember that the big story of scripture is not really about two kings. This is really about a third king. And that king is very unlike the other two kings. That king came, as we just remembered a few minutes ago, came as a servant and gave his life that if you would put your faith and your hope in him,
that those sins, that falling short, that those scales are made right, not by your works, but by Christ's blood and his sacrifice. That you are then forgiven and given salvation in God. That third king is spoken about in Colossians chapter 1. I read a little of that earlier, but here's the part I didn't read. Colossians chapter 1 verse 15, Paul says this of Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, kingdoms come and go, but the kingdom of God lasts forever. That's the lesson that these kings needed to learn. They weren't getting it. They didn't understand that these little fake and false gods that they served, that they made with their own hands, were nothing compared to the king of all kings and the God of all gods. And so you and so me, when we wonder, going back to the beginning of this message, God, why did this happen? Why didn't that happen? Why didn't I get that job that I wanted? Why did I let go, get let go from this job I wanted to keep? Why haven't I got healed? Why hasn't this prayer been answered? Why have you allowed this to happen? I don't and I can't and I won't pretend to tell you I can always know the cause. Maybe there's pride. Maybe there's something else. I don't know. I can't tell you the cause. But if you are a follower of God, I can tell you at least a big part of the reason or how God's going to use it. And it is so that you and I would know that God is God and that you can trust him. And in those times of loss, that you would hit your knees and say, God, I need you and find that he's enough. And in those times of blessing, that you would say, God, I thank you and that you would worship him. See, don't miss the reason. God is always shaping you. He is always, he's the potter that is always working the clay to make you more into the image of his son. Don't miss what God is trying to teach you in the midst of your pain. Don't miss what God is trying to teach you about himself and about yourself. Because what I know is Philippians chapter 1 verse 6 says, He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. And Romans 8.28 says, All things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. So that means that all the things that are going on in your life, God is using and working for his good, for his purposes to make you into the person that he has called you to be. 
So while you often look, and we often look for the cause, for the symptom, for all of this, don't miss the reason. Don't miss the big picture of what God is trying to tell you, that God is God, and the kings of this world may come and go, but the kingdom of God lasts forever. And things in this earth that are so important to us now in the light of eternity, in the light of who God is, may not be nearly as important as we think they are. Keep your eyes on God. Stay focused on him. And so as we close out this morning, I'll ask our music team to return to Two responses to this message. One, if you are a Christian in here, you're a man who follows God, you're a woman who follows God, uh, then I think we have to look in our own hearts and we have to ask ourselves these two things. Am I ever like Nebuchadnezzar? Do I look at what I have built, my positions, my possessions, and I start to take pride in it? God, forgive me. And God, show me that and heal me, set me free. Am I like Belshazzar? Have I taken what God has given me and that I use it for my own purposes and my own gain and not for God's glory? God, forgive me. God, I fall upon your grace. God, help me. But also, if you're in here this morning and you have not yet put your faith and trust in God, could be any number of reasons, but this morning, I would just ask you to consider could it be that it's pride? Could it be the same pride that kept Nebuchadnezzar from recognizing who God is? The same pride that caused Belshazzar to just do whatever he wanted, no matter what, is keeping you from putting your faith in God. That it's not about the things you tell other people. It's not about you're not sure about this question or that question. What it may be really, could it be that it really comes down to you don't want to recognize God as God of your life. I think oftentimes that's what it comes down to for us. Because then I have to say, God, you're God. I'm not. And I will trust you with those questions I don't have answers to. I will trust you with my life and give it completely over to you. I will follow you and obey you and you will be Lord and that's not easy all the time. But here's what I would say based on this morning's message. God is after you and he wants you to know who he is. Don't make him, don't wait and don't make him have to take you from king to cattle. Don't make him have to rip everything away from you so that you can see that he's really all you need. That come to him this morning and realize, and lay down your pride and lay down that, that thing that you have, that I have too, that just wants to be in control all the time so much. And in a step of faith, take your hands off the wheel and get out of the driver's seat and give your life over to God and allow Him to lead you. Would you pray with me? And if that's you, this second part is you, I would encourage you to just pray with me as I pray. There's a prayer on the back of our Connect card and I'll just read it as, as you have your eyes closed and head bowed. 
because I, we give this to you so you can take it with you. Let this be your prayer. If that's your prayer, that you want to put your faith and trust in God to let your pride die, give yourself over to him. It says, thank you, God, for loving me and sending your son to die for my sins. I repent of my sins and receive Christ as my Savior. And now as your child, I surrender my entire life to you. And if that's you, let those be your words and tell God even now, God, I want to give my life over to you. I no longer want to let anything stand between you and me. I don't want it to be that you have to rip everything away before I realize that you're all I need. And this morning, I commit my life to you. Father, I pray for that person, those people in this room that are making that commitment, that you would do what you said in your word, that as they draw close to you, you will draw close to them. Fill them with your spirit. Dwell in them. And for the rest of us who are in this room who are followers of Christ, Lord, would you cleanse us? Cleanse us of pride because we can't see it. We always see it in other people. We never see it in ourselves. We always think it's something other people have a problem with. We never think we do. So Lord, cleanse us. Forgive us. And Lord, help us to be a people that would live our lives completely and wholly for you. In Jesus' name, amen.